Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am excited to have the third arm of the Unbuild It podcast on. Maybe Peter can give you all of the insights on Jake and Steve. If you don't know who he is, Peter Yost, tell us who you are and what you've been up to. Well, thanks, Emily. Yeah, so uh, I work out of Brattleboro, Vermont. I have a sole proprietor consulting uh, firm called Building Right. Uh, that's building with a hyphen and then a W in the front. Um, I started the company about two years ago, uh, leaving Building Green, where I had been for many, many years, uh, just to be able to sort of do stuff on my own schedule and um, with the only boss being my wife, who is my bookkeeper as well. <laughs> so there's no, no hiding anything from her anymore. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, and it was sort of a retirement scheme because uh, I turned 65 last October. And so I wanted to be able to, you know, mix work with other stuff at my own pace and my own schedule. So the, the, for the last 20 years, I've been doing um, consulting uh, on building investigations, design and spec reviews for architects and builders, a lot of trainings. Um, and teaching, you know, people say, well, what's the difference between training and teaching? And um, teaching is, uh, well, training is when you, you know, come waltzing in, say whatever the hell you want, and then leave because you're done. And uh, with teaching, the same bloody people keep showing up. And so you, it's a lot harder to teach because, uh, you know, you have to connect one day with the next. And so it's a lot more rigorous than training. Um, so I've, you know, taught from the high school level all the way through to graduate school. And um, uh, it's just, it's really good to um, have the different jobs that I do fit together, but also sort of play off each other. So it would feel sort of silly to be teaching training folks about stuff if you didn't actually practice in the field. Um, so yeah, mostly Northeast, but um, you know, across the country as well. I was going to say, I was going to ask you if you do training kind of across the country, because that was, um, I don't, wouldn't say eye opening. I think I, I knew that it would be really different, but it's been a lot of fun doing the BS and beer show uh, this year. Cause uh, we have a tendency to stick close to new England. I practice in mostly new England States. And so, um, you would get on the BS and beer show and we start talking about something that seems totally normal to us up here in new England. And they're like, Oh, we would never do that here. It's yeah. too expensive. Or, you know, you, you start thinking, um, you know, part of the reason for architects to have different uh, additional requirements for some states is because they're really different. You know, like in Florida, you would never do some of the stuff that we do here and hurricanes and winds and flooding and California with seismic activities. And so it's, it's, it's fun to think about all the rest of the parts of the country, but you know, my, my primary specialty, and I try to make that, that clear for anybody is like climate zones, six, 
five, six, seven, you know, so mm-hmm. sort of, sort of what I understand. And, and even then, you know, one side of the country to the other, what's available is pretty, it's pretty interesting. So, uh, so you do consulting kind of all over the country. Yeah. And, um, uh, I, you know, most of the consulting outside of new England, I do remotely and, uh, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, this is sort of the, the, the backside of it, but, um, my liability is a lot less if, you know, I'm advising and I'm never been to the building. Um, but I have I've had a couple of clients uh, who learned about me through Green Building Advisor or maybe the Unbuilt It podcast. And, um, you know, with an iPhone and FaceTime, I have a couple of clients like they'll, they'll call and if I'm available, I pick up and if I'm not, I don't. And then literally they'll just pretend I'm there, they'll just take their phone and turn it to the problem at hand and we're off and running. So, you know, with modern technology, Zoom and, and, and FaceTime, you can almost be there at, at the job site. Um, and certainly, you know, Steve and I both worked at Building Science Corporation for quite a while, he a lot longer than I did. Um, but the Building America work that we did was across climate zones. So I would say that given I was a builder in New England, a remodeler, and then, mo- you know, I did go to the NHP Research Center, which, you know, is uh, climate zone four, four uh, A, so mixed humid. Um, but most of my work was East Coast. And um, so f- maybe four through seven for climate zones. But at Building Science Corporation with the Building America program, we did projects all across the United States. A lot in California, a lot in um, uh, Texas, Florida. So that was really hard because, you know, if, you, if you've never built in a particular area, it's a lot harder to feel like you're, you know, on both feet when you work on those kind of projects. But a lot of travel. <laughs> A lot of travel. Yeah. I worked for a couple of years for an energy engineering company out of South Carolina doing large scale multifamily uh, retrofits. And, you know, we did stuff in Texas and South Carolina and out in California. And, you know, it was, it was really amazing to go out to, um, you know, Texas and you're like, well, we really need to be talking about dehumidification. We're going to take care of this moisture first. And then, you know, we can talk about, you know, and they saved so much money by doing, I think it was like toilet replacements and low flow faucets that they could mm-hmm. then they had enough capital funding then to, to do dehumidifiers and windows. Like, I mean, it was just, it's mm-hmm. so fun to, to see how, how those different things work together. But Texas was just so completely opposite of anything that, that we had done up here, you know, in California, you go out and there's desert and it's like, it's really cold at night. And then it's really hot during the day. And to just see the swing is also just, I don't know. It's amazing how, how, how different it is. I, I talked to an architect out in Colorado, um, on a previous podcast. And he said in Colorado, they have climate zones, like three through eight, like across the state, they have just like all of them, depending mm. on where, where you are. Um, so it's just, I don't know. I find it interesting, right? So physics is physics, as long as you know what you're supposed to be looking for and doing with it. And, um, I didn't like physics in school. I didn't <laughs> like it till someone applied it to something that I was like, Oh, wait, hey, that is actually really interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. So Cause yeah. Uh, Steve often says, you know, it's not rocket science. It's ninth grade science. 
And I always tell them, well, what the hell do you know? I actually taught ninth grade science. I, I taught high school for four years, uh, physical science, chemistry, and biology. I never actually taught physics, um, but uh, it's kind of neat to take the basic sort of high school level uh, science and then see how it applies to buildings because that's the key, you know, is, yeah, you might understand the science behind something, but can you really apply it to buildings? Right. Um, I also think if you applied it to buildings, maybe when you're in school, I don't know, maybe kids aren't as interested quite yet in that, but I feel like if you applied it to some of that, I also didn't really like calculus till I took structures in college. And then mm -hmm. I was like, oh, hey, you know, calculus isn't just a bunch of numbers and letters, like it actually has some application. So it makes me kind of wonder if you applied it to some of those building things, if more people in high school would go into the building field, because then it's related to something that's easier to understand. I don't know. Maybe it's not actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we um, we have a career center here in Brattleboro, you know, vocational school. And it's sad because quite often the building trades is for people who sort of can't cut it, you know, on the academic side. And, uh, you know, we have a, there's a architect friend of mine here in town, John Sakosho, who went through the local school system and took a lot of the vocational stuff. He was really interested in buildings, but then became an architect. Um, so he was constantly moving between the academic side of the programs at his high school to the vocational side. And, um, you know, I mean, I've had, I remember, you know, I teach a, a graduate course at Yale each fall and um, it, the, the classes uh, through the school and the environment which used to be Yale's forestry environmental studies, but it's, we get a lot of architect students who uh, take the class as well, because it's called green building. And um, it's pretty common that when we do the unit on uh, building science and building physics, um, you know, fourth or fifth year, uh, I'm sorry, first or second year master's candidates in architecture at Yale will come up and say, I, I didn't, we're not studying any of this. I've never heard of this stuff before. And um, I said, well, you know, go ask your school why there's not building physics. And this answer I'm told by the student, and I've heard this before, uh, when she asked the Dean of her school, you know, why aren't we doing more on building science and building physics? The response came back, the curriculum's simply too full and you will learn that on the job which should which, terrify all of us. You should really terrify all of us. I know um, we've had this discussion. I've actually talked to a couple of educators recently, right? Because um, we've talked about architecture school and you go to school for five years and they don't teach you how to build anything. And I mean, it is good, I think, in architecture school for you to have at least a certain amount of time where it's not tied to how you build it, to, to teach you how to think outside of the box and to come up with really creative solutions. But then I really do think that maybe the last two years should be a lot more of physical applications to what to, to do with this, because, you know, you get into a firm and maybe the firm's too busy. And so you spend a lot of time doing, you know, one or two things. Technically, you're supposed to do three years worth of internship in hours, right? It's not like right. a, a right. time date, but a number of hours in certain categories, which equals out to about three years worth of internship where you learn that. But as a young architect in the field, you're not always learning all of those things. And 
honestly, I didn't really learn building science until, um, in 2009, the market crash was terrible. It was like considered the worst time to be an architect. We always joked it's like gainfully unemployed. Mm. And I sort of thought about it and I was like, what don't I know? What do I need to know? And I went and I started doing building science consulting and I worked for a firm and I had to follow my boss around for three months before I was allowed to do anything on my own. And went into a lot of existing buildings, learned how, first of all, how existing buildings were put together. And then, you know, where were some of those challenges would happen? How can you improve existing buildings? And then just kept going with training, you know, first started with the lead exam, which was the only thing that was available back in 2006, Uh, all the way through, you know, BPI, HERS rating, passive house, got to take them all. And everyone's like, why do you have so many certifications? So like, everyone teaches me something I didn't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, Learn about something different. So it wasn't it wasn't until I decided that that was something that I really wanted to know, like there has to be a better way to design architecture that thinks about this stuff as part of the design process, not like how do we make it efficient after we've designed it, um, that I got into building science consulting and, and actually learning those principles. And then I think back on it and I go, boy, how many architects are out there that just, haven't learned any of this and how many builders are out there that they've got all these new building materials and they don't understand the physics of how the the system works like are they going to build something that won't fall down probably yeah are they going to build something that won't rot maybe not (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we still really don't have a a solid building science credential no, I mean, NIBS, the National Institute for Building Science, has been talking about, you know, a building science uh, consultant uh, uh, accreditation, but we, we don't have it yet. And, right. you know, I went and took a class at the University of Wisconsin in their engineering department to, um, you know, it was a week long course. And then you sat for two exams to get the uh the professional designation of a building enclosure consultant and a commissioning agent. And, um, you know, uh, really top notch instructors from the U S and Canada, but even that, that's not, that's not a nationwide credential. That's just, uh, focused through one university. Um, so yeah, we, and I, I've worked with engineers and architects that, know their stuff, particularly engineers, like a structural engineer, mechanical engineer, civil engineer. But the only engineering discipline that's about buildings is architectural engineering. And we don't have very many of those. Um, Most engineers are, you know, among the others, structural, mechanical, civil. Um, And that does not guarantee that you understand hydrothermal, you know, uh, behavior of buildings. So, yeah. Yeah. I think what it's taught me is what I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Like what don't I know and who do I know that I can pass this uh, by? It's actually interesting. I spent the weekend in Vermont, pretty close to where you are uh, with Ah. Bob Swinburne Mm -hmm. and Mike Maines and and the three of us, you know, went to see a couple of Bob's projects and, you know, we talked building science and, you know, we were super nerdy on our weekend in Vermont. First of all, I don't know how you get anything done in Vermont because I just wanted to spend all my time outside. (laughs) It's like, I don't know how you work here. <laughs> you, uh, you came on a good weekend, apparently. 
Yeah, it was beautiful. It was a it was a perfect weekend. It was it was cool enough and warmed up during the day and we could sit outside on the porch and um sleep outside in tents and then the barn and it, mm-hmm. it was a it was a great great weekend in Vermont. But yeah, even with all of the different programs I've done and the trainings that I've taken and everything, it's like I agree. It would be awesome if there was a, you know, building science degree of some sort in, you know, whether it's engineering, whether it's some, uh, you know, bachelors of arts and building science, I don't even know. Um, because yeah, enclosure consulting, that's probably as close as you, you come to it. So. Yeah. And, and the real, you know, the, the academic enclosure consultants come from programs like Penn state or university of Waterloo uh, UCAL Berkeley has a program. I think Kansas State does, um, but they're you know they're not terribly well known, and they certainly are a you know much smaller discipline than structural, civil, or mechanical. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I went to Penn State for my undergrad mm-hmm. degree, so we took classes with the architectural engineering department for oh, cool. our structures and stuff, but. We took mechanical and we took structural engineering as part of our, our degree. But, but even so we, we didn't learn anything about enclosure. Yeah. I mean, still yeah. so much more to have learned there. So, you know, John Straub's book, building science for building enclosures. Um, he co-authored that with Eric Burnett, who was, you know, the guy for building science at Penn state for many, many years. And, and John did his PhD under uh, Eric Burnett. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's really interesting that we are so dependent on understanding the hydrothermal performance of buildings, but we, we don't know how to sort of um, codify it. Right. Um, yeah. And on all different levels, you know, everything from, from the, the builder through the design intent and yeah, it's, it's also rewarding to, to teach some of that, you know, even just, uh, on, on the basis, I teach one sort of, uh, introduction to, uh, I don't even know what sustainable design, I think is what my classes is mm-hmm. considered, but right. Like what is sustainable? That's always the first question. And you get like, a, <laughs> you get a, a, whole, a whole host of, of questions, but then, you know, they ask questions and, you know, you don't understand what you still don't understand until you have to teach it to someone else. And That's then, the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, okay, well, let me see how I can break this down. So, yeah. uh, it's, it's really rewarding and that makes you want to learn even more. And then every time I think I've, I don't want to say I, I'm going to always be a student just because I, I think it's interesting, but every time we get somewhere, you know, it's like at first we were just like, okay, we're going to take down operational energy. And then it was like, no, we really need to think about carbon in our buildings too. And then 2020 was like, well, we really need to think about the indoor health and indoor air quality of our buildings and what's in our materials. And that's on top of, you know, what do our materials do in the structure and to the structure and, you know, um, 
I have a consultant that, that works with me and she's doing a project for me and she's doing a project for another architect that I know. And she's like, Hey, can you review my building section? I, I'm not sure I quite caught it. And I could kind of see how she was trying to relate what we were doing on our project to what she was doing on that project. And I was like, well, you, you actually don't have the same scenario here and let me, you know, go through. And, and, and so it's, it's, interesting to see people kind of working through that process as well. At least I find it interesting and a little bit scary, right? So you must, as the consultant, find it a little bit scary. Do you get things that come across your desk and you're just like, oh man, yeah, definitely don't do it like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's always, uh, you know, when you come on board to a project, um, it's oftentimes, you know, you, you don't want to, um, start off on a really heavy handed, um, you know, attitude towards the design, but there are a lot of times when it does jump right out at you and you're trying to figure out, well, how do I break this slowly? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do I say this tactfully, but don't do that ever. Right. right? right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is most of your consulting work residential or commercial then? It is mostly residential. Um, you know, I've never built a commercial building except light frame, like uh, offices. Um, and my, my brother, Nathan, who worked with me at, at Building Science Corporation, he said, you got to get over this hang up of feeling that you can't, you know, be an expert or a consultant on a building just because you haven't actually worked on building one. Um, but that's the way I've always felt, you know, since I've never uh, built a commercial building, then um, I don't feel as comfortable um, in design and spec reviews for commercial projects as I do residential. And it's interesting because the, while the principles are the same, there's just so many technology differences and, um, systems differences, um, you know, curtain wall assemblies. I mean, they're just completely different than any light frame residential, whether it's, you know, uh, masonry or, or, uh, wood or steel, um, so it's the, it's the really sort of esoteric components of the different building types that I think are the most challenging. So you can tell someone, well, you need a continuous air control layer there. Oh, okay, what's that? And then you explain it and they say, yeah, but now I've got to translate that into the, to the details of the drawing. And you know, there, there are often products or systems that are available on the commercial side that you know, we don't really have on the residential side that when I, when I teach, there's a really great book um, called designing the exterior wall by Linda Brock. And um, when I was, uh, this is probably 2005 or 2006, um, Boston architectural has a a Boston architectural center has a, um, an online program for architecture. And, they wanted someone to develop a building enclosure class for the, for their online. And um, I, I think I called John Straub um, because John, you know, he's a professor of architect, architectural engineering at university of Waterloo, really close association with building science corporation, uh, Joe Stebrick and Betsy Pettit. And I said, you know, John, I can't really use your book because his book building science for building enclosures is I think there's 18 chapters, about nine of them are accessible to, you know, an average person. 
the other nine are highly mathematical and you know you have to have a really strong engineering and and math background um so i can't really use that for you know a 10-week class with architects and i said there is no text he, well you're wrong he said there's a woman named linda brock who just in 2005 wrote a book called designing the exterior wall it's specifically for architects and one of the cool things about her book is that she has an equal number of chapters dedicated to representative uh, light frame assemblies and uh, buildings and cross sections and then an equal number of chapters on representative commercial building uh, enclosures and and assemblies and uh because she feels that, well, residential gets short shrift a lot of time. Oh, they're really simple. No, they're not, you know? And, and so I highly recommend that book because of that equal attention to detail for um, light frame as opposed to, you know, type one through three buildings. Um, yeah. You've, you touched on my favorite subject. So first of all, I don't own that book and I'm going to go and get that book as soon as we're done here. Uh, but uh, I get these questions a lot because I'm I'm a big reader. Uh, currently for BSM Beer, we're reading Musings of an Energy Nerd because we mm. often get asked, um, you know, like what's the best intro to building science book, both for people who are trying to learn it and do better at it by practice, but also for a homeowner to understand what to ask for, right? Right. Cause it's this two-sided coin where unless homeowners start asking for it and the demand starts changing, or we get some kind of policy change that requires people to do it. Like we're, how are we ever going to get over this hump of, well, I've been doing it this way for 25 years and that's not yeah. a risky assembly that I know how to do. And it dries out. And so it's not going to rot, but it probably costs your homeowner a ton of money to live in it. And it's uncomfortable, right? Like I grew up in a house that was built before the civil war. And my dad always said, go put on another sweater. Right. And that was <laughs> what we did in the eighties, but people in the 2020 don't want to go put on another sweater. Like we've gotten used to being a little bit more comfortable in our houses. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, what else is on the top of your, your list as far as, as books, because, you know, like the, John Straub book you mentioned or water and buildings, right? Some of those, those books are like, you've got to have a lot more technical mind. You got to read it six times before you understand, you know, even a quarter of the book, but like, where do you start in the beginning? Yeah. Um, so I still think that buildingscience.com, if you're going to pick one resource, just because, um, you know, 23 years of Building America put online for free um, and also building science for different climates. So, you know, Joe has the builder's guides for, for all the climates and they're now quite outdated. You know, he has an, I think 2005 or that general uh, timeframe is the last time he revised those. So there, you know, there's quite a bit of building science that's been refined since you know 2005 um so i'm not quite sure the, the the guides are still as um cogent as they need to be for 2021 but you know on buildingscience.com there's enclosures that work and that's a whole bunch of different enclosures and then there's designs that work which are um you know much more climate based um and then, 
the Building America Solution Center um, is a climate specific, because um, what, what I find a lot is, you know, we, when, when we look at the building codes, there's a, always been, or not always, but certainly in the last 20 to 30 years, a prescriptive path and a performance path. Because there's a bunch of people that say, you know what, I got to build shit. So just tell me what to do. And that's the prescriptive code that you comply with. And then there's other people say, no, don't you dare tell me what to do. I'll figure it out. Just tell me what you want. And so that's the performance path. And, um, you know, at the end of uh, trainings and teaching that I do, if someone says, yeah, this is all very interesting and I'm glad that you understand it deeply, but still, please just tell me what to do because it's fascinating, but I'm not going to study building science. You know, I'm not going to add that to my day job. So we've always needed sort of two approaches, you know, teaching people to fish as opposed to fishing. And um, so I think the Building America Solution Center is really good for people that say, okay, I've got the general principles and you've scared the crap out of me about moisture. Now tell me what to do. So if you go to the Building America Solution Center, there are plenty of climate packages. Like, you know, here's a typical foundation above grade wall and roof for a hot, humid climate. And um, sometimes it's a sneaky way of sucking them in the back door because, you know, you, you tell them to go and look at the climate packages and they say, oh, okay, yeah, so I mostly understand it, but can I change this? Oh, wait a minute. You, you asked for a package and we gave it to you and now you want to make changes. Well, if you're going to change it, you got to, then now you got to, you got to learn the performance path. Yeah. You know, it's funny because people, uh, even uh, so before we took BS and beer online and we had our discussion groups and everything, and we did this one uh, that Mike put together in Liberty on uh, exterior uh, water resistant barriers and, and, and everything. And it was funny because um, my tagline and from anybody who listens to the podcast is usually it depends, right? Because people will ask me something. They're like, well, well, can I do this? I'm like, well, it depends. Like what mm -hmm. else do you have? And so we had put together this, uh, this discussion group on it. You know, we had a couple of builders show up and they're like, well, when I walk into the lumber yard, how am I supposed to know what I need? And I'm like, well, it depends. Right. And it made <laughs> me think about it that there should be a degree in building science, uh, for sure. Uh, an enclosure specialist and every lumber yard should have that person, right? Like they should be the people who employ that you come in as, as a builder or an architect and you're like, okay, here's my assembly. This is what I'm doing. What do I need? And then they would have the ability to take a look at what you have and give you not just what's on the shelf, but what you actually need for, uh, you know, for something. It's a, I, I hate those calls, texts, or emails. It's like my, uh, builder wants to use such and such instead of whatever you spec'd. And, and, um, I'm like, well, did you, did you change this? Cause if you didn't change this, then you can't change that. And I, I have one client say, well, doesn't it say on your drawings, what they're supposed to use or, or an approved equal. And I said, yep. Yes, <laughs> like it, yeah. it, it does. It doesn't mean that that's well in 2021, it doesn't mean that that's available. Right. So sometimes you're making changes because of availability. Um, and sometimes you're making changes because of what they're comfortable with. And mm -hmm. that's when it gets a little scary, right? 
<laughs> and part of the reason why I think it's so important to stop doing bid work and for the contractor to be on board during the design process, because then everybody's on the same page. And then if they do need to change something for some particular reason, they ask everybody on the team and, you know, three sets of eyes on something has to be better than just one, right? In theory. <laughs> yeah. And it's always an upfront cost. So, you, you know, I, you can sometimes, you know, pay me sooner rather than later because you pull me in near the end of the process, it's never going to be inexpensive. Right. Um, yeah. The, um, the whole issue of material substitution, you know, product manufacturers just keep introducing more and more products faster and faster. And, you know, quite often, no, I shouldn't say quite often, it's not unheard of for them to not even understand how their material works by itself, much less how it performs as part of an assembly. So builders and architects are left to figure out how all this stuff fits together. And so I've, I've for uh, probably at least 20 years now have been saying, we need to hold manufacturers feet to the fire. If they want us to use their product, they have to not only have the full slate of performance properties, which sometimes they don't, and they have to be able to tell us, well, you know, what's the compatibility with different other elements of the assembly? Because we shouldn't be guinea pigging that on our active projects, which is what we do. Right. And there's so much truth to that on both just the material interactions with each other, but also installation details. Right. So yeah. I love this when Steve talks about it too, is, um, you know, whose responsibility is it to know how all these things are installed, right? Is it the product manufacturer is saying, here's this product and you're like, okay, great. But how do I attach it, put it in, seal it up, you know, whatever. Cause like the tape guy, isn't the window guy, isn't the builder, isn't the architect. And it's like, you know, so, or we're all out there in the field trying to figure out how all these things go together. And then as soon as you figure it out, they change something and now none of it works again, you know, and that's really frustrating too, is when they change a material property and they don't tell you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then it used to work with X, but it doesn't work with X anymore because they changed some, something in it. And now it's reactive to this or it off gases, or it has, you know, they improved the vapor permeability of it. Well, great, but maybe that wasn't how I was using it or, yeah. Yeah, it's it's frustrating and time consuming. And then you get, you know, you get kind of I mean, I guess that's part of the reason why people have been doing something the same way for 25 years is because they finally figured out how these six products work together in this one location. Mm -hmm. And they're like, OK, we've got this detail down, but building science and products are just moving ahead so quickly. I mean, gosh, the things that we understand now, things I was doing five years ago, I'm like, well, I mean, maybe it wasn't bad, but there are so many different ways to do it now. Like this is so much better. So, well, and that, you know, I got driven into doing the wingnut testing because, um, you know, uh, Steve and I and Mike Gurton had developed, you know, the thousand construction details that Steve did for Green Building Advisor. And during the time we were developing Green Building Advisor, so that was like 2007 to 2009. Um, because I had worked at the NEHB Research Center down in Bowie, Maryland, NEHB's education department ca caught wind of 
the fact that we were developing this new online resource. And they approached me and said, hey, we hear what you're working on. Can you develop a course for us to offer to our members on building science? And I said, you got to understand, we're not going to change anything for NEHB. You know, we will have complete autonomy. And they said, that's okay with us. I said, well, you can say that, but, you know, I guarantee you we're going to offend some of your members with what we're about to say, whether it's builder or architect members or product manufacturers. But to their credit, NHB said, no, you know, we trust you. We know you from your work at the research center and we want you to develop a course based on that new resource. Anyway, so I, the first time I taught it, um, you know, it's a two day training, eight hours each day. And uh, I think it was the morning of the second day, you know, this builder stands up or raises his hand in the back of the room. He says, you know, I, I get it. You said that one of the best ways to build a green building is to make it last because if it lasts three times as long, that's a third of the environmental impact if you had to build it three times. He said, I love that. That makes perfect sense. But you've been going on and on and all these drawings show continuous water management and continuous air control layer based on sticky stuff, sealants and tapes. And they're all buried inside the assembly. So if the building's supposed to last for a hundred years, how long do those tapes and sealants last? And I, you know, you get that terrible feeling when you know somebody is asking the question and you, you're getting caught with your pants down big time. And so I told him, I said, I don't have any idea what the service life is of any of these materials, but I'm going to go find out. And as soon as they started the process of looking into, you know, how are pressure sensitive adhesive tapes formulated? What are the limitations to their uses? How, when do you use a tape as compared to a sealant? Um, and uh, I began to realize that all the tests that confirm the properties are done in laboratories. And so, you know, controlled temperature, controlled humidity, um, perfectly clean, perfectly dry. It's like, well, those, that doesn't mean anything. We don't have any of those conditions. <laughs> yeah. And so we need those tests, but they're not, they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. Um, and, you know, as I started to do more sort of benchtop or ad hoc testing, and I would try to get manufacturers to talk to me about that, it, it became pretty clear they do a lot of field testing. But because they're not standardized, they, you know, there's, there's no way for them to express that. And frankly, that's proprietary testing to them. That's for them to understand how their product works and how to write installation uh, requirements or guidelines. Um, but they're not going to, you know, they're not going to tell you about those. Um, so, you know, the wingnut testing was born out of, um, we need to field test these. And, and interestingly, um, the, the, my last year at the research center, 2000, uh, there was a guy named Dr. Christopher White from NIST. So the National Institute for Standards and Technology. And I had met him through some meetings and you know, he's a PhD in chemistry. I think it was chemistry. Um, but he says, hey, I got this new project and it's um, called the Field Service Life Prediction Testing of Liquid Sealants. And I thought, field service life prediction. Oh, how long do they last? 
And he said, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and I said, so, you know, do you, do you have a new test? And he was doing it under the auspices of ASTM, American Society for Testing Materials. He goes, no, but I, that's what I'm working on. I'm trying to develop uh, a laboratory test that's standard to do field service life prediction of different building materials, starting with liquid sealants. So I left the research center in 2000, but every year I would send an email to Christopher White and say, hey, how's the testing? Oh, it's great. Did you have anything you can share? No. And literally this went on until 2000, I think it was 2012, each year. And as soon as I called him, he would just start laughing and saying, I know what you're gonna ask me. I don't have anything to share with you yet. Um, so it took him over 10 years, but then I called him one year and he said, yes, we have a new uh, ASTM standard or actually two that we're vetting now. And um, so I wrote a blog about this. that's actually on buildinggreen.com, but it was fascinating because his whole 10 or 11, 12 years of work was trying to create a standardized test that could assess how long liquid sealants last in the field. Um, so he's the one that got me thinking about, okay, well, if he can do that for liquid sealants, what can we do with other sticky stuff? Um, and surprisingly, when, you know, when I started to think about pressure sensitive adhesive tape testing, um, I called him and I said, hey, you know, Christopher, why don't, why don't you do this? Because, you know, you clearly were successful doing it for liquid seeds. Ah, we'll, we'll never have a, a field service like prediction test for uh, PSA tapes. Um, and I said, why not? And he goes, well, there's just enough, not enough money in that. And he thought, what? I mean, there, you know, we have a pressure sensitive tape council, you know, I mean, and um, so it always surprised me that he felt that there was the sort of the interest and need and money to do the testing development for liquid sealants, but not for tapes. And I still don't quite understand that, but um, we, we, don't, we don't have a field service life prediction test that's standardized for tapes. Um, yeah. So um, I, I mean, you were asking about this earlier. I'm actually, um, I, I just did a, uh, unbuild it uh, video clip for this. I had a project where we, where there was a, um, uh, a timber frame cathedral ceiling slash roof assembly that was getting water stains. And so there, there was some way either through wintertime condensation or bulk water leaks, we were getting staining on the ceiling underneath. And, um, it's a long, complicated story, but uh, we, we eventually took off a roof panel and did find some bulk water mismanagement or leaking. And um, this, is, this roof, when it was retrofit, went from a vented assembly to an unvented roof assembly. And um, when they switched it to an unvented assembly, that meant that the standing seam metal cladding was directly against the roof underlayment in constant contact. And um, since 2002, when Paul Fazette at UMass Amherst wrote an article for Fine Home Building about, wait a minute, all the tests 
that are standardized for weather-resistant barriers don't include the one condition that exists for all buildings, which is the WRB is right up against the cladding and therefore if water gets through, it's held in tension. Well, if you go and look at the two dozen tests that you can use per the code for weather-resistant barriers, none of them mimic or reflect water held in tension. So the boat test, that's not water held in tension. The hydrohead test, you know, all these things are, are tests that the code accepts, but they don't. So, so Paul just took a piece of wood, a Tyvek, a paper towel, and a piece of another piece of wood and um, put drops of water on the WRB and just uh, rubber banded them together. And because he had a piece of paper towel in there behind the uh, uh, weather barrier, it's like, it's like blotter paper. So I let it sit for three hours. I take it apart. If the paper towel's wet, it didn't resist water held in tension. Simplest test ever. It's not, so it's what now, 18, 19 years later, there still is no test in the code for water held in tension. And then in 2005, there was an article written by Hall and Hoygaard, two Canadian building science guys. And they said the same thing, you know, we we're having to develop our own tests for whether it's the barriers mimicking water held in tension because some of the house wraps, you know, resist water held in tension and some don't. Um, so anyway, I, I'm up on the roof and we yank this panel and I see liquid water and I'm thinking the roofing underlayments are no different than the weather's the barriers. I know there's no test that mimics water being held in tension between the roofing underlayment and the cladding. So I just went home, took a piece of the, that particular roofing underlayment and went into my basement and thought, well, how do we do this? So I just took a piece of flashing and pinned it up against with a clamp um, against the WB. And I took a eyedropper and, you know, put drops of water at the very top of the metal so that it would seep through. Um, and then with a moisture meter, you measure the, OSB's moisture content before you do this, right? And then you do it and you drive, drive a whole bunch of water in there. And um, then you, you know, after three or four days of doing this, you take it apart and you, you moisture test the, uh, with a pin moisture meter, the, um, the same piece of OSB and see if it's, see if any water has gotten through and, um, so I'm right in the middle of that testing now. I'm doing a whole bunch of different materials. It turns out that the roofing underlayment for that particular project, to my surprise, let zero water through held in tension. And the reason I say by surprise is because this particular roofing underlayment is kind of furry. Oh. And, and when I put the water in, um, I just kept you know, putting drop after drop. And I had it set up inside a rubber tote. So I, I thought, well, the water either gets absorbed or it runs out the bottom. And I'm, I'm like putting like 50, 60 drops in and nothing's coming out the bottom. I thought, okay. Oh, it's, it's, it's probably soaked. It. It's yeah. probably soaked. And it turns out that, a lot, yes, a lot of water was being held in the sort of the fuzzy surface 
but it didn't get through the backside of the WRB to wet the OSB. Hmm. So, you know, it doesn't matter how much it holds. It matters how much it transmits. Right. Um, so anyway, it's something as simple as that, because all, all of the tests for WRBs um, are appropriate if it's a rain screen cladding, because if, because if there's a space between the WRB and the cladding, well then the boat test or the hydro head test, the water will not be held in tension, right? Because right. It, it can bead basically. Right. Um, so if you're doing a rain screen, then the ASTM tests that we cite are probably appropriate, but you know, and so people will ask me how important is it to do a rain screen? I thought, well, it's it, 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 the, the amount of relief it provides, you know, for free drainage and air circulation, but also thirdly, if water's not held in tension, it behaves very differently than if, you know, it, it beads basically. Yeah. It just feels a whole lot less risky. I mean, maybe you don't need to, maybe you ended up with a good WRB like you had on that one and it's not pushing a lot through, but maybe seems like kind of a bad idea. <laughs> so it seems a, a lot better to be pretty sure that, you know, you're that, that extra safety precaution and not that you want to build every safety precaution into every single scenario, but this seems like a pretty good one too. I mean, we just, we always do rain screens. It just seems like a good idea. So. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we, Steve and I get this question awful lot. Well, well, how much of a space, you know, like the Benjamin Obdike is one millimeter nubbins, you know, does that provide free drainage? Well, about 93% of the water comes out the bottom, but 7% can be held in tension. Hmm. Well, is that good enough? Well, and that depends on what kind of siding you have too, right? Mm -hmm. So like that might be okay with shingles that, you know, there's more air movement because there's a lot more gaps in the space and whatever. But if you've got cladding, now your cladding's not drying. So now you've got this reservoir on the outside and that 7% is holding in tension and still wet. And it's like, it's like, well, no, that's probably not enough. You probably need to dry your siding a little bit more. And, you know, it's not just about letting it go. It's about air movement behind there. And so you know, we, we, that's why I always say it depends. I'm like, well, what do you have? I don't know. Well, it's funny when you say it, it depends. When, when Steve and Mike Gerton and I were working on these drawings, we, Steve had done several hundred and uh, the, the three of us would get together. I think we got together at Steve's house in Reading, Massachusetts. And uh, we were going over one day the, the step flashing around chimneys. And, uh, you know, I had, I had only used baby tins, you know, I, either three by five or whatever the next dimension up is. And Mike looks at the drawing, he goes, this is useless. You know, you, you can't use baby tins there. You got to do like 10 by 16. To 10 by 16, what are you talking about? Well, Mike builds in Providence, Rhode Island on the coast. And so he said, use the baby tins. I get water driven up and over those all the time, you know, because he's building in high wind areas. So it, you know, when you ask, when somebody asks you about, well, what level of protection do I need? Well, the first question is climate, but the second question is site. You know, um, my brother, Nathan went to a building investigation 
for, uh, for a, actually I had a project that was, um, it was a beautiful custom vacation home um, at the very top of Lake Champlain. And from his beautiful, highly glazed, south facing uh, vacation home, there was a 50 mile fetch, which means, you know, 50 miles of open water. And so the level of protection that he needed on, you know, the, the prow <laughs> of his house, you know, he, he was constantly getting, you know, severely wind driven rain. And in fact, when we did the retrofit for that, for his house, um, you know, I went around and took all kinds of moisture measurements and, you know, visual inspections. And I said, all the damage is on the south side. The east, north, and west sides are just fine. So when, when his remodeling contractor came on board, I said, can you weave these new levels of protection and the new windows at the corner boards to the old stuff? Because otherwise, I, I don't think we need to reclad or redo the other sides. It's the, it's the 50 mile fetch side that's the problem. And right. it was cool because we saved the cu customer a lot of money. Because the safer thing would have been for both the builder and I to say, nope, you got you to gotta do rain screen and bring your A game for flashings and stuff for all four sides. But the actual data from the project said, it's the prow of the ship that's taking the beating. It's taking the beating. Yeah. Here in Maine, we just have a lot of waterfront, right? We've got ocean, yeah. which is its whole, it's, it's a whole new game, but we've also got a lot of lakeside Yeah. and you go in and you look at it and you're, oh man, like what they do here, you know, and people are going in and trying to renovate it. And, um, yeah, it's especially as they're transitioning. And I don't know if you see this a lot in Vermont too, but as people are kind of transitioning, what was a cabin summertime use, you know, into year round living? Well, that that's a whole different ball game. That's a different use. That's a different, you know, if it's meant for the summertime and it can all dry out and whatever that, you know, it has a little bit of flex to it, but if you're going to seal all of this up, you're going to live in it in the wintertime, you got to really think about it and we did one project was up on the top of a hill and, you know, we had soffit vents and it would blow snow in the soffit vent. And it was like, Oh, right. Yeah. When that was like way early in my career, you know, before, before I maybe thought about all of those other aspects as well. It's just like, this is a different site and it needs to be treated differently than what we have. And it was just on one side, just just the direction the wind came from and it would just blow in the soffit that I was like, Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I have a client in uh, Northeast Pennsylvania and uh, you know, the whole issue of why his building doesn't have more trouble and it's a vacation home. And so, you know, if, if the thermostat in the winter is set to 50, and you've now dropped the Delta T by 20 degrees, you know, that it, it changes a lot. And, and then you don't have the occupancy pressure. So, you know, when I first looked at the details in a Zoom uh, meeting with him, I thought, when we get down there, it's not gonna be pretty. Um, and yet what we found was, yeah, there were bulk water management, but a lot of the 
wintertime interstitial condensation that I expected to find, we didn't see it. And I said, so, you know, if we change the way this building performs, that's a major shift. But if you change the way it's being used, you know, because for the past 40 years, it was built in the mid eighties, 30, 35 years. Um, it's been weekends and, you know, maybe a, a three weeks in the summer. So if you change the use of the building, I, I had one project, there was a lot of water in the basement and it was a couple that were both, they, they were both retired. And I actually wrote a blog about this on actually two blogs on Green Building Advisor, but based upon the moisture in their basement, I knew I was gonna find a, a, a lot of moisture problems in the attic because it was cellulose insulation up there. It wasn't air sealed. And so I get up into the attic, it's perfectly fine. And I come back down and I, I'm, I'm really puzzled. And I, so I turned to the homeowners and I said, based upon the amount of moisture that's in your basement, in the winter, it should all be condensing up in your attic. And they said, well, would it make a difference if we aren't here during the winter? And I said, what, what do you do in the winter? They said, we completely shut the house down. We drain all the pipes, the house floats. Well, that makes a really big difference because right. you're not going to get condensation in the attic when it's not cold, right? Because the, the moisture is being driven up, but it's not being driven up into the attic because to do that, you need a lot of heat, right? To, to move the moisture from the basement to the attic, which it condenses up there. So I told him, I said, you don't have any kind of air control layer at your attic, but apparently that's not a problem. But if you ever change the use of this building, and I said, you should be better managing the moisture in your basement regardless. Right. You've gotten away with it for so long because of your pattern of use. And interestingly, um, uh, with the pandemic, for the first time in many, many years, they occupied that building during the winter. So oh, hopefully they took care of at least some of their bulk water in the basement before they occupied yeah, it for the winter. I, well, it's funny because I, I thought, I thought to contact them and I said, you know, remember we had the conversation about if you ever change the pattern of use and you are this year. So uh, bring your A game to manage in that basement moisture. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I, and that's one of the scary things too, right? Um, is uh, that changes homeowners, right? So, so this homeowner knows that they've used it this way for 40 years. So, you know, they've never stayed there in the winter time and then they, they go to sell it. They're just like, okay, we're going to, you know, stay South all year round. Right. So we're just going to sell this house and they sell it to the next person who has no idea. Um, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. I think every mechanical room doors should have a QR code that explains like everything about your house. Like we know how to drive our cars. There's a manual for it. You'd never yeah. expect to not do maintenance on your car, but for some reason we still hear, I want a no maintenance house, which is not a thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, 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 I don't want to have to do a lot with it. Well, then live in an apartment right? Have a <laughs> landlord. I don't know. Uh, yeah. cause, cause it, it, you know, even 
landscapes. I mean, there are not no maintenance landscapes, whether you have grass or you say, Oh, I don't want to cut. I don't want to cut any grass. Well, okay. You don't have grass, but if you've got plantings or whatever, they're also, you know, even if the only thing you have to do is cut it back every year. So it doesn't take over. You still have things to do with it. And that's the, the thing about homeownership is that people just turn them over. Right. And the next person doesn't know. Um, and I'm probably like the worst when, when we're, this is the third house we've owned. I made my husband look at 50 houses this time before I found one I was willing to live in. And I was like, oh, it's got great bones. We only need to do a little bit. And we've been working on a renovation project. And he's like, you literally want to touch every square inch of this house. And I was like, well, <laughs> but most of it is good. The bones of it is good. And, you know, he kind of laughs at me, but we would get these documents and I'd be like, okay, well, what's the, what's the fuel usage? Like what's the energy usage on these build buildings and homeowners either didn't know, right. Yeah. They don't keep track of it. They just pay it or they don't disclose that they don't live there in the winter time. Well, what it costs you to live in it, if you're going to live in it year round and they go to Florida every winter could be vastly different. So you sure. don't know what you're yeah. getting into or then, um, when I was doing energy audits, I, I did one on a double envelope house and it was like the third or fourth generation of someone owning this house. Mm. These people had no idea what they had. Mm -hmm. Like some vents were open, some weren't, there was no vapor barrier. So it was all just moisture going through this it huge attic fan, right? Cause it sucked the air out the top and they would just run it all the time. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And they were using the front um, uh, atrium space. That's the heat sink as like a greenhouse and it was open to the rest of the house. So it was just oh, nice. so hot in the house all the time. And I'm like, Oh, not that I'm saying this works exactly as it's planned. Cause the double envelope house is kind of a scary fire hazard with like moisture, whatever, like lots of things you wouldn't do now, but interesting idea. I'm like, but you should stop doing these things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were like, yeah. Oh, well, you know, we didn't know that when we bought this house. I'm like, I once was at a conference in the Midwest and there was a pretty famous uh, passive solar architect who was going to be presenting and I'd never heard him speak. And so I went to the session and um, I, th I think, I think I couldn't get in the back row. So I was, you know, halfway down and um, he starts his presentation and it's sort of passive solar one-on-one. Oh my God, this is going to be such a waste of time because, you know, I, w I was expecting him to, you know, go into much greater detail and, and depth on the topic, but he was explaining the systems for passive solar. And um, he got kind of frustrated with a couple of questions that people had. And um, he looked up and he said, all right, let's just get something straight. Passive homes require active occupants. Active homes tolerate passive occupants. It's like you, you can, you know, build, design and build homes that require a lot less engagement, but their performance is going to be pretty narrow. And, you know, if you want a passive system where you're taking advantage of different aspects of climate at all, you have a role to play. And it, it was like the whole presentation was totally worth it because then people got into this big discussion. Well, how do you get occupants to engage? if you're going to deliver a high performance house that is pretty reliant on their understanding and behavior. Um, you know, that's a great, I mean, we, 
occupancy engagement is a huge topic in commercial buildings. Um, you know, huge. how do we, yeah, but we, but with residential buildings, you know, we don't really, that's not a thing. Um, it definitely should be. It should be. Uh, it's interesting. We just did a BS and beer, uh, a couple of weeks ago on things that the residential world could learn from commercial building, mm. you know, and, and some of them, I think because I worked for an architect that did some commercial building and I did MEP coordination drawings that I do that kind of in residential, but it's not like a non-existent thing for a lot of people, but there are so many things in occupant. Um, we're writing the pretty good house book right now. Um, and one of my chapters is, um, is the uh, occupant education, right? Mm. And it's like, how critical is this piece, right? Especially if um, that's a great statement that passive homes need active occupants. But most homes have active occupants. They just don't know that the things that they're doing, (laughs) you know, because it was the joke that you didn't need air conditioning in, in Maine, right? And up until the last couple of years, I would have said that's probably pretty true. We dealt with a couple of days where it was hot, whatever. Well, now we're getting more like a month or two months or three months of, you know, hot and humid days. And, and I think it was Sonia, um, Grunt is our mechanical engineer who, who joked and said, Mainers don't know how to deal with it air conditioning. Like we just don't know how to use it. Like we're not even sure what we're supposed to be doing here. And so, you know, creating all these swampy houses, you just keep turning the air conditioning down. It just keeps getting swampier. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's like a lot of houses have uh, active occupants. I think my favorite was um, if you've ever been in a development, like uh, in the forties, they did a bunch of, uh, of uh, housing for, um, the people up in Bath who worked at the Naval base or whatever. And they were the same, right. There was like the same house. They built them quick over and over again. If you ever get the opportunity to go into developments that are built like that, where they're all the same, that looks the same from the outside, but how the occupant uses it is totally different. And they work Mm. completely different. That's the thing that's fascinating. is like, you, you built it the same way and yet Mm. it's not doing the same things. When we, um, I was working on a green mortgage with Fannie Mae back in uh, 1999, and uh, this topic came up: like, how do you how do you make sure that people, when they move into a new home, actually read the operating manual? And um, so we came up with this idea that we would embed coupons that were, you know. Ideally, you could do it so they were coupons with a big box store or something. And so you would bury these coupons in the electronic homeowner's manual and just tell people there's, you know, $800 worth of coupons that are hidden inside your homeowner's manual. So you need to read it because you're going to save a lot of money. (laughs) So that's awesome. We never, we never actually did that but we we had it all figured out like where we wanted to put key pieces of information and who would be the sponsor of that you know aspect of the book so i still think it's a good idea but i have to admit we never actually did it it's a that's a great idea it's like how do you how do you get people and like people buy cars and they get owner's manuals and there's regular maintenance that you're supposed to do. And you'll still have some people who won't do that, but you'll have a lot of people who are like, yeah, okay. I, 
I get that. I, I know. And, um, I, for our mechanical equipment, I said to one of our, our providers who does heat pumps and, and ventilation, I was like, you should really set up a service division and just sell that to our clients because they'll buy into it. Have you come back regularly service the equipment that they have? Like people, people will kind of buy into that idea. Uh, and the idea of the QR code that you, you buy the house, you go into the mechanical room, you click the QR code and it adds things to your calendar that sends you a reminder to change the filter that sends you a, you know, yearly reminder to have your compressor cleaned or, um, it, and, and even so I, I still do this with, with my, and maybe it's because I'm a hers raider. And so we often go through at the end and do a lot of verification stuff, but I walk through the homeowner. I still can't tell you how many times they are confused that their ventilation system and their heat pumps are the same thing. Mm. Right. It's like, no, these are two different things. This is how this one works. This is how this one works. And, um, that's the part that makes you, you get really, uh, nervous. I think on our end is there were a lot of people who liked, uh, exhaust only ventilation because pretty much everybody knows you turn the switch on the bathroom fan comes on. They kind of understand that they still don't use them, but they understand that mm-hmm. if someone turns the ERV off in the summertime, cause they don't need it. They don't always turn it back on in the wintertime. They sell the house to someone else. Um, or that, you know, Zender is really the only, a ventilation company who commissions their systems that knows that it's not only just balanced at the unit, but that it's balanced at every head that comes out so that, you know, you're actually getting 50 CFM in the bathroom if that's what you need. Right. So it's all, all well and good if it's in, but if it's all going to the bedroom and none of it's going to the, you know, the kitchen or the living room, well then, you know, it's really not working the way that it's supposed to. So, yeah, yeah. That's a huge problem. I mean, just because the unit is balanced as a unit, when you hook up ducts to it, if they're, you know, if two of the ducts are really long with a lot of 90s, well, it's going to deliver a different flow than one that's a straight shot. So when you actually connect it to ducts, it's not going to be balanced anymore. You know, right. you have to, you have to commission it, but yeah, that's a real common problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, well, we've been talking for an hour and I think we could talk for all day. I love talking about building science and enclosures and scary things that fail. And I love that people, um, I love the community on Instagram that's sharing some of these things so that hopefully people will learn from, from the mistakes that we made as an architect. I think that's the the biggest thing for me is we need to not be afraid to go to job sites, see what goes well, what doesn't go well and understand those details. And we're not taught that in the office. And so it's important to, to make those connections. But earlier when you were talking about wing nut testing and what you did is I've always had this fun idea that the architecture students and the construction students would get together and take a building science class and they'd build a little mock-up like a little tiny house or a little shed or something and do real world conditions of tapes, sealants, installs, you know, however it works and, and leave it outside for a while, you know, and then maybe a, 10 years later, another class disassembles it or, or something. And that's one of the things I love about the passive house, passive pod trainings where was like one class will put it together and then another class will deconstruct it. And you see what sticks together and what doesn't stick together. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's invaluable experience. So it would be really cool if schools started kind of connecting those dots where, you know, building stuff and designing stuff and, you know, the, the construction team 
takes a design class. So they understand, you know, what's going on in the design and what's easier to figure out on paper. And then the designers take construction classes and that everybody takes building science and understands, even if you don't understand, you know, just every level of it, cause it'll constantly change. You, you at least understand that, you know, when to ask questions and that's probably the most important thing. Like know when you don't know. Yeah. I, you know, generally when I do presentations about wingnut testing or that involve that aspect of my work, I'll end by saying, you know, we should all be wingnuts. We should all be doing these tests because no one can live long enough to do all this stuff. And um, so I did an online presentation for Better Buildings by Design, which is the, you mm -hmm. know, um, sort of building science-based uh, Vermont conference. And um, a guy named Nate Gusikoff, who I've been doing some work with um, because he's with Ma uh, Silver Maple Construction uh, out of Northern Vermont. And um, they have a insulation air sealing company called zone six energy um and nate heads up that operation including aero barrier um and at the end of the presentation he called me up and he goes we need to develop a new a wingnut test collective and so he's doing it he's got a website that's under development for us um and we're we're both of us are really interested in um Aero barrier as a retrofit air sealing opportunity, um, because so often the only way to comprehensively, uh, you know, air seal an existing building is spray foam, um, and aero barrier could be, you know, a, an even better, more comprehensive approach than spray foam. But um, we both have questions about how long it service life is, you know, um, what are the, what are the factors that affect the strength of the bond of that acrylic sealant um, with various materials? Because when you use it in an existing building, it's sticking to all kinds of different stuff, drywall, right. plastic pipe, wood, sheathing. Um, and so Nate and I, one of our first wing nut new projects is we actually did our first test panel um, a week or so ago in Northampton, um, a test panel that we put in a patio door while they aero buried their whole house. So we, we put a whole bunch of classic penetrations with a whole bunch of different materials into the panel. And then it was aero barriered as part of the house being aero barriered. Um, and then that test panel will stress test. Um, yeah. but the idea is that at the next builder buildings by design conference, we're going to do a session on current wingnut testing, but then hold the first wingnut test collective charter member meeting. That sounds awesome. I love that yeah. idea. And I think, uh, you should get all of the builders and, and designers to do this because this is also this joke that I say a lot. People are like, oh, I want to come to the architect's house. And I'm like, no, you don't. This is where we test all the things that we confidently will do in your own house. So there's probably lots of builders and potentially some architects out there who are who are doing their own version of wingnut testing just on their own houses to see how it holds yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. If, if we can collect all that information. I mean, I, when I was doing a presentation, I learned, 
you know, there's a company out, Walsh Construction on the West Coast, and they've done extensive liquid sealant testing for their own, you know, own projects. And they have a whole garage just full of all these beads of sealant on different substrates. And I wouldn't have learned about their work if, you know, they hadn't heard about it through a presentation. So mm -hmm. people are doing stuff out there. They're just, you know, there's no, there's no forum to collect all this information. Yeah, I agree. And that's always been a big thing that I've said is, you know, there are other people doing the same things. There are other people out there having similar ideas. We just don't, don't know, you know, and it's the same with the, the BS and beer. Um, we had had people all the time who are like, oh, you should videotape your discussion groups. Like, I'd love to do that. It doesn't happen in our area. And so then when we took it online, you know, just as a, because we had to, um, you know, during the right. pandemic, right. it was like, it really opened it up. And I don't know that it'll stay online forever. Maybe it will, maybe it'll always be in its current inclination. But what it's done is identify other people in similar areas who can now get together in their own groups and do stuff. And, and that's been really exciting. It's just a matter of connecting like, oh yeah, hey, there are other people out there who are interested in this, who are talking about it, who want to sit down and discuss the merits of, you know, all of these things, which it's like, how do you, how do you find those people and connect them and, and everything? So I love the idea of doing a, a wingnut uh, collaboration uh, where people yeah. can join in initial membership. So well, stay tuned. Cool. The, the website's not really live yet, but we're, we're getting there. It's, it's cool. another one of these, you know, moonlighting things. So it's exactly. It's cool. a, the thing, the things that happen like outside of our, <laughs> right. the things right. we do time. every day. Yeah. <laughs> Who has any of that these days? Yeah. So, well, it was great talking to you today, Peter. I appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, any last words you'd like to say about Jake and Steve, since we didn't talk about them at all, <laughs> even though. Uh... <laughs> they'll, they'll be so offended that we didn't talk about them during this time. I know, I know. I, so. You know, it, it's funny. I didn't know Jake until I met him through Steve. And, uh, you know, Steve and I have very little in common except buildings and love of family. But that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. That's yeah. good. So. And Jake's the same way. So yeah, it yeah. works out pretty well. I love the podcast. It's so much fun uh, when when you guys get on and talk ideas. And and again, it's just another way to get it out there. So people know that like we're talking about this, we're doing this stuff. That's, that's why I do this podcast all in my spare time right. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the time. It's just to connect people. So, well, thank you. Um, I appreciate Great your time with you. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guest, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.